Edmonton's 15-Minute Sandboxes. This week, city admin shockingly suggested that Edmonton's relationship with the province might be strained. Plus, we dig into sandboxes, the screen industry, and buses down the middle of White Ave. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 209. Mac... Bing has released a new AI chatbot rivaling ChatGPT. You got into the beta, and when you have access to AI tools like this, you can use them for good or you can use it for evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have chosen to use it for evil as a way of validating if my jokes are fun. (laughs) Well, I used it for good first. I asked it to, to evaluate if there was any merit to Lauren Gunter's latest column, and it said no basically. This seems to be <laughs> based on shoddy information. Uh, but I did ask it about one of your jokes in the rapid fire today. And I said, does this joke make sense? And it explained to me in great detail why it doesn't and why it might be perceived as mocking someone and be considered offensive. And so I think that's a win, actually. According to Bing, my jokes are non sequiturs. Uh, so let's get right into them. In a win for cab drivers all across the city, The City of Edmonton has confirmed that all patrons are allowed to be bare-chested at City of Edmonton-run pools. Said the president of the Edmonton Taxi Association, quote, We just want consistent rules. If we don't wear shirts in council chambers, then why should we wear one in a pool of all places? Mayor Amarjeet Sohi is scheduled to meet with Premier Danielle Smith nearly five months after she was elected Premier of Alberta. While some have criticized the lack of meeting as a snub— Smith has met with the mayor of Calgary twice in the same period. The premier told reporters that there was a simple explanation, saying, quote, With former Premier Kenny moving on to his private sector work, it has been hard to get a hold of him, and more importantly, the earplugs that he handed out in the legislature. And those are an absolute necessity in order to meet with the mayor of Edmonton. Alberta's investments in esports are paying off, as professional Hogwarts legacy player Jordan Peterson is slated to compete in Edmonton this May. As a condition of his Rogers Place appearance, he demanded very strict rules about bathroom access. David Staples has been selected as the natural choice to enforce these rules, meaning all patrons will be required to pee in the sinks for the duration of the event. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted and produced by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. We got breaking news this week, Mac, uh, in a meeting with city administration. A council was told that perhaps a risk facing this council is a strained relationship with the province. Now, this is news to me. Where did this come from? (laughs) Who would have thought? So the city does this thing called a corporate strategic risk register profile, and they do this every year and they update it and it looks at risks across, you know, a whole variety of sector, a whole variety of factors like financial constraints, political landscapes, health and safety, all that kind of stuff. This time it identified 17 strategic risks across these themes, and it determined that intergovernmental affairs is among the biggest challenges facing the city of Edmonton. It is listed as a medium risk behind only the high-risk item of inflation-related cost increases. I have to wonder about the medium risk versus high risk here? Because sure, you know, inflation related cost increases are going to cause 
more immediate impacts, but they're also much easier to predict. You know, you can look at the inflation, you can look at wages, and you can see, okay, this project is going to cost me a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, you can't quite as easily predict, hey, the provincial government is going to change the Municipal Government Act to prohibit banning masks. That's a thing that you just don't predict easily coming. Uh, and especially with an upcoming provincial election, uh, we have Danielle Smith saying such things as, you know, let's uh, repatriate the Canada pension plan. Let's install Alberta police forces and starting task forces that deploy sheriffs to Edmonton streets. You know, even without really taking any materially huge action, the province has been quite blatantly stepping on the city's authority to rule. So I would say, giving this government a mandate, we should only expect more. I'd put it in the high risk. We said off the top in the rapid fire that Daniel Smith hasn't even met with Amarjeet Zoe. It's expected to come March 7th, but eh, it seems like a pretty high risk to me. And during the conversation, I heard Councillor Aaron Rutherford basically echo that, saying things to the effect of, we see the risk here, we see the strained relationship, but I can't quite imagine anything else that the city could do differently to repair this relationship. Yeah, this is in contrast to her colleague on council, Karen Principe, who, you know, said, no matter what party's in government, we all have to work with them, we have to collaborate. She said, I would like to ask all my colleagues to just take that to heart. That is something we could be working on as a whole together to just make a better relationship. And as you point out, Council Rutherford was like, well, there's it's not like we haven't been trying. Like there's a tenuous relationship here, but it's kind of one-sided. We've heard lots of opportunities you know, for the province to work with the city. And over time, I think those things have become a little more antagonistic, right? Instead of like, we could do all this great stuff to solve affordable housing. It's now consistently, the province is not doing what it's supposed to do and, you know, you know holding up its end of the bargain. So it's become strained for sure. But I do think there's been more effort from the city than from the province to do something about that relationship. We saw a couple things in the news this week that maybe are related to the election and uh, and hint at trying to court some favor in Edmonton. So I'm thinking of $4 million out of the sky to uh, renovate uh, the Citadel Theatre and the money the province is spending to finally do something about the Remand Centre in Edmonton. You know, these are the kinds of announcements you start to see as we get toward budget and we get toward an election. But, you know, it could be also perceived as the province trying to make the relationship not look so bad. And I want to talk briefly about the Citadel because, you know, I'm a regular patron of the Citadel. The Citadel is a great place. I, I love that we have this theater in Edmonton. But if I was a provincial government looking to buy votes in the Edmonton area, HVAC upgrades for the Citadel Theater was not something <laughs> top of mind for me. No, I, I agree with you on that. It's sort of a head scratcher, right? Why the Citadel? Do they have amazing... Uh connections into the government over there or what's the what's the story there it could just be though that uh, it's pretty uncontroversial to put money into arts yeah and you know the citadel does need it it's relatively cheap you know the citadel is quite a large building and four million dollars to do necessary upgrades this will also include things like more inclusive bathrooms and more accessible spaces so it's all very good news i don't know if you've been to the citadel since they've recently expanded some of their uh wheelchair access but the theater has quite a few more seats that are accessible to people with limited mobility. It was great when I went there the last time. So happy to see these investments. Still not going to 
vote for Daniel Smith, but thanks. <laughs> and still a risk for the city, right? This doesn't, you know, these things in isolation don't really change anything. And it's not really the kind of relationship that City Council Rutherford is talking about. Also in this news this week, uh, I'm always watching for the solar panel rebate to go live. So I was rapidly clicking the news release when I saw this and then was disappointed when it wasn't that. Still no word on when the rebates will go live. But what is going live is an invitation to Edmonton homeowners to apply for a new net zero retrofit program. Yeah, when I read this, I thought, okay, this is interesting. I'm sure this will be right up Troy's alley. And I started reading and I'm like, this makes sense. So the city is offering free energy audits and connections with trained contractors to homeowners who want to retrofit their homes to be net zero. And the thing that I got stuck on was the number of homeowners here that they're looking to work with, which is <laughs> 10 to 15 across the whole city, you know, given the thousands of people that have been interested in e-bike rebates and solar rebates and other things, it just seemed like 10 to 15. Really? That's it? Uh, but you explained to me that there's actually a reason for that. Yeah, this is less of a broad program that's going to make a material difference and more of just like, you know, a chipping away at the problem. So specifically, this program is less about the homeowners themselves and more about the contractors. Think of it more like a practicum where you've gone through this training, you've gone for, through schooling to do these net zero, and the city wants to give you more experience. So they're offering to connect homeowners with these contractors who are fresh out of training. That's why it's 10 to 15. It's just a small practicum thing. The actual benefit to the homeowner is quite low, honestly. It's offering free energy audits, not a free retrofit. It's just the energy audit, which is only like a $600 fee. And the feds do cover it too in terms of the Greener Home Grant. So actual benefit to the homeowner, it's pretty negligible. Hopefully this fills up so that these contractors can get some more experience and, you know, we can be better adept at making more buildings net zero. But this is kind of a nothing burger of a of an action. I'm, I'm glad to see it. I think we should absolutely do a ton of small things, but this is definitely a small thing. Would it be fair to call this a bit of capacity building? So they're working with Canadian Home Builders Association on this. And as you say, it's really more about the contractors. Is this is the whole idea here, just the more contractors we have that know about net zero, the better it'll be for everybody? Yeah, and the more homeowners that know about net zero. It's all about connection and, you know, the change for climate at edmonton.ca, that's who you have to email. That group has been doing a lot of connection and education. And I think that's the whole point. Andre Korbald said he wanted to hear a million Edmontonians talk about climate change before he put it on the budget. So this is a way to get more people talking about it and involved. The city also wants us to talk about the Sandbox program. They're soliciting some responses to the four proposed options. And Taproot wrote about that this week. This is so interesting to me. I did not realize the scale of this program. So I think most of us who have been in Edmonton for quite a while, you know, grew up here or have lived here long enough, have seen these sandboxes, right? Just these wooden boxes on the sides of roads that have sand in them. And it makes sense in a winter city where there's a lot of snow and, and ice. But I did not realize there are more than 700 
So the city says there's about 769 currently. It's grown quite significantly in the last five years. It used to be 150, but we've had this program for 30 years. So we've had you know quite a number for, for quite a while, uh, but this is much larger than any other Canadian municipality. So we have way more bins than, than almost anybody else in Canada. There's a couple that have maybe a couple of hundred. Calgary has like 30. We have almost 800. We spend... $900,000 a year to maintain this program. So the sand is free for communities, for residents to make, you know, sidewalks more passable. I imagine probably some people use it if their car gets stuck or it's slippery, that kind of thing. But that's still not an insignificant amount of money. And so the options that are under consideration here all deal with whether or not we should continue to spend that money. Yes, except for option four, which is we should continue to spend this money and more. It proposes increasing the number of boxes, but broadly, it's a cost-cutting operation. It's saying we spend $800,000, $900,000 on this. Could we spend less? And the way it proposes to spend less is through by reducing the number of boxes. They could either put boxes just at eco stations and everyone has to drive to pick these up. They could put them in about like 30 places, you know, by like recycling depots and eco stations and that sort of thing. And both of those options would save eight hundred to $900,000 a year, basically negating the cost of the program. We could keep it the same, spend 900 grand. Or option four is we could bump it up to about 900 boxes, make sure that every new community has a box. And that'd cost us, you know, just over $1.1 million per year to do. An increase of 200-ish thousand dollars. And Mac, I'm going to say, in light of budget concerns, in light of fiscal constraints, in light of all the problems that we're facing, especially with OP12 and the desire to save money, we should be pursuing option number four, increasing the scope of this program. <laughs> well, you mentioned OP12, so just a little bit of context. I do think that although it doesn't say it explicitly, this feels like a really tangible example of shifting money from lower priority things to potentially higher priority things, because they're not just talking about saving that 800000 or 900000 in those first few options. They're talking about putting that into snow and ice control, the thing we're already increasing the amount we spend on. So it's a pretty tangible example, I think, of you know administration looking at all of the programs and services that we do spend money on and trying to say, well, how else could we spend this that might accomplish a similar thing, but in a way that is more aligned with the things that are important to council? I did look at the map for where all of these 769 are. It seems pretty well distributed throughout Edmonton. But as you say, there's some new neighborhoods and things that don't have them. Why do you think, Troy, that the new neighborhoods need a sandbox? It's not quite about the new neighborhoods needing a sandbox as much as it is every neighborhood needing a sandbox. I think the thing that I bumped on, and you even mentioned it in your commentary reading from the report, saying that we could cut this money and put it into snow and ice control. And I have to stop and think, how absurd is that as a statement? Is sand in communities not snow and ice control? The city defers to residents to clear all the sidewalks, to make sidewalks safe. And when it's freezing rain, when you're in one of the newly redeveloped neighborhoods where the design of neighborhood rehabilitation has been for water to drain across sidewalks, therefore freezing over in the winter, this right. is just a design consideration we've made. That means there's ice on the sidewalks. We need sand to have traction. Slip and falls are hugely expensive, maybe for the province, but also just keeping our residents safe. The whole point of snow and ice control is to make people safe in snow and ice. And I can think of no better tool than sand. 
if you make someone have to drive 15, 30 minutes to get sand, most people, first of all, aren't going to do it. Some people don't have cars. They can't take a bus to these eco stations. They can't get sand. This is just going to make it massively unsafe in service of what? The snow and ice control? You said it. That's not going to be snow and ice control to have the city clear the sidewalks for everyone. No. It's going to be to clear the white mud a little bit faster. And I think that would be doing a huge disservice to the city of Edmonton because this sand is infrastructure. Our sidewalks do not work without these sand programs. And I don't think we should be looking at it as Edmonton has the most expansive program. What are we doing wrong? And instead, we should be thinking, Edmonton has the most expansive program. Let's go on tour and tell other cities about how great this is. I mean, this is anecdotal, but to to reinforce your point, like I haven't been tweeting as much this year, but of all the things I've tweeted, this one got some of the most engagement. And it was all from people saying how much they like the program and think that it should be expanded for the most part, talking about how maybe the boxes need to be refilled more frequently. The city, by the way, says their goal is to refill it within 13 days of a snowfall. So, I mean, the reasonably sized boxes, that's probably pretty good. But I think you're right. This is infrastructure that people in Edmonton have come to appreciate. I don't think $900,000 materially changes how well the roads get cleared. So maybe it is a much better investment to, uh, to keep this or maybe even increase it. Another thing I'll add is that history tends to repeat itself. Just like Oliver Poole, this is not the first time city administration has proposed cutting this program, except last time they didn't propose cutting it. I don't know if you recall a few years ago, I was on the community league board at the time, so I was bearing the brunt of resident concerns about this, but the city unilaterally closed the community sandbox program. They just made the change to say it's only at recycling stations, it's only at the eco stations, the around like 30 locations around the city. And community backlash was huge and vicious. Sidewalks got dangerous. And then council intervened and administration refilled the sandboxes all around the city. I hate to think that we don't learn from history, but like you said with your tweet, this has massive positive engagement from the city. This keeps people safe. People need and want this. I can't imagine that it's a political win to cut $900,000 and cut a program that literally has 700 access points across the city. It touches nearly everyone in the city. That seems like a huge hit for not a lot of gain. Absolutely. I mean, that's really interesting, the history that you mentioned, too. This was 2017 that uh, they voted, council voted to restore the program. And that winter prior, or, you know, 2016, 2017, that winter is when they canceled it. And at the time, they said it would save $300,000. And uh, there was only 150 of these boxes. So not only did they restore it, then we've expanded it and, and built it up to the program that it is today. You know, I think sandboxes are a lot like our discussion around 15-minute communities. If we're extolling all the virtues of 15-minute communities where you have everything you need within a 15-minute walk or cycle, sand is included in that. And we saw this week, I think the logical next step of our 15-minute community dream get published with the Old Strathcona Public Realm Strategy. This is in the Old Strathcona area, which I think many in the city would agree. Sorry, Mac. I hate to slag on downtown here, but I think White Ave is the most 15-minute community community in Edmonton right now. 
And uh, there's a new public realm strategy to perhaps enhance that for the people who do walk, cycle, and use transit. Yeah, we can argue about the uh, the 15 minutes in this, <laughs> uh, especially now that downtown has another grocery store. It's making a big difference to people like me who live here. Any- anyway, this public realm strategy, as you mentioned, is draft released for public feedback. The, the city had already done some engagement on this. I think it was in the summer last year. And they heard broad support for turning more of the space of White Avenue that is currently dedicated to cars into space that could be dedicated to pedestrians. So they were supportive of reducing parking to add transit lanes, uh, removing traffic lanes for transit, making the sidewalks wider so there's more place for people to walk, more space for businesses to do patios and add signs and things like that. It very much looks like the kind of public realm you would end up with in a more dense area with more people living there and more, you know, 24 seven activity, not just, you know, business hours and that kind of thing. Yeah. And if you go to the city of Edmonton website and look at some of the design mock-ups, they're quite pretty. Broadly, it has bus only transit lanes running through the center and then usually one lane of traffic in each direction with expanded sidewalks and patios. In one of the mock-ups, they have a pickup area and a curb cutout lane. In one of the examples, they have a turning lane. So there'd be uh, two lanes on one side. But broadly, it's single lane of traffic, two bus lanes, and bigger sidewalks, which I'm widely supportive of. I think this design gets a lot right. I remember it was only a few years ago when the energy line, the LRT line that was supposed to go down White Ave, was officially killed off by council and administration as not really going to happen. This was during discussions of a potential downtown circulator LRT. All these discussions around LRT down White Ave were inevitably kiboshed because the prevailing wisdom at the time was we can't put mass transit down the center of White Ave. That would ruin it. There's too many cars there. So if this is a uh, reneging on that, if this is revisiting that concept and saying, actually, we can do that, I'm happy to see it. All of the design proposals have two lanes of bus transit mocked down the center two lanes of White Ave, which is very exciting for me to see. I'm less excited, though, because we know in the city of Edmonton, it never ends up looking quite like the renders. And in search of actual information about this, I was quite hard-pressed to find much about how this will work. One person asked me, hey, if the bus lanes are in the center of the roadway, how are you going to get on and off the bus? You can't very well stand in traffic while the bus opens the door. It's a pretty good question. I think it's a great question. Yeah. (laughs) Is this going to be BRT style with platforms in the middle of the road and you cross one lane of traffic? That could work. Are buses going to cut out across and do stops on the side? And I endeavored to find out The city actually made it quite hard to find information on this, but they have this cutesy thing called a story map that is linked to on the project page that, you know, in a cutesy scrolling uh, parallaxy way gives you some information about the project. And in it, it says the exact alignment of dedicated transit lanes will be determined as part of a future mass transit implementation work. So basically what it's saying is we have a cutesy render of something that on first glance is very clear won't work. And we have no ideas about how it might work. And also this design as proposed, we know isn't going to look like. (laughs) Like you said, it never ends up looking the way the renders look. I guess I have two thoughts when I when I look through the story map as well about this. So one is 
maybe the buses just work like the streetcars in Toronto. They don't pull off anywhere. People do board in the middle of the road and traffic has to wait, right? When the streetcar is there, you can't pass a streetcar on that side. Maybe it's meant to be somewhat similar with the the dedicated bus lanes in the center here. The other thing I, I noticed and I was pleasantly surprised by is unfortunately not the road renders, but all of the renders for the park space seem to have an equal number of winter and summer landscapes. And one of the biggest issues I find with all of these sorts of imagine what it could look like activities is that we always focus on summer. The renders always look good when there's green grass and trees and never what does it look like in the winter. And I think in this case, the story map does a pretty good job of showing what this space could look like in the winter as well. And I think that's a that's an improvement over some of the things we've seen in the past. It occurs to me as I'm talking about this, it feels like I'm coming down hard on this. Let's just talk about the winds. There is a proposal that says we're going to reimagine White Ave with wider sidewalks, no compromises on that, with dedicated space for mass transit, no compromises on that, with removing the parking lot for the farmer's market and turning it into a park, making a linear park up to end of steel, connecting with the River Valley. All of these things are things that we've been asking for for a decade, for longer. And without much pomp and circumstances, the city sort of just dropped it in a couple PDFs and says, hey, what do you think? So broadly, yeah, I think it's pretty good. There's a survey that you can fill out. We'll link you to it in the show notes. I think the city did a good one here. Let's make sure the mass transit ends up being useful. Let's ask the hard questions. But this seems like a pretty big win. I mean, it's a step in the right direction for sure. Hopefully they get some really constructive feedback and uh, that we get a little bit more information about how this is all going to work. But, you know, certainly encouraging. Council also heard about how we can encourage more screen industry and film and movies to take part and participate in the Edmonton economy. And on a little bit of an about face with how these conversations typically go, the proposal was not so much to invest in productions and encourage them to come to Edmonton. Yeah, film in particular has been in the news recently, right? Film in Alberta and in Edmonton with The the Last of Us and how successful that has been for HBO. And can I just say, yeah. good TV show. I know it's a hot <laughs> take. I know no one said it before. Good TV show. The reviews seem positive. I've not seen it yet. I have, of course, looked for the clips of Edmonton. I want to see my street in the show. Um, but of course, Skinamarink as well, right? It's been all over the news. You know, it's huge, huge success on really tiny budget came from Edmonton. And there's an organization in Edmonton that is intended to help these kinds of things happen. It's called the Edmonton Screen Industries Office. And it went to committee this week to ask for permission to change the $4 million fund it has from one that acts like a venture capitalist, where you invest in these individual projects, you know that nine out of 10 of them are, you know, either going to fail or maybe just break even. And then one of them is going to do really well, and it's going to help pay for everything. They want to change it from that model into something different, where we fund capacity. We're trying to build an industry that then goes on to make money, as the CEO told uh, us in in an interview for Taproot that we did a story about this. And I think that's really interesting. And evidently, executive committee did too, because they endorsed it in a five to nothing vote. And of course, this idea is really interesting, because there was a time when movies were, you know, you shoot on a lot with cameras and Everyone's in hotels during the shooting. And then, you know, some guy in a room does some post-production and then the movie gets released. But that's not how movies are made anymore. There's huge VFX 
budgets. There's a lot of location shooting. You saw The Last of Us shot all across Alberta and they used Edmonton as a shooting lot. They stimulated our economy, but you know, they didn't shoot the whole thing here. It wasn't an Edmonton show. And I think it's a really interesting idea to just build capacity because we don't need to be a Hollywood backlot. We're not going to outcompete Vancouver for shooting of entire TV shows and films, but we can certainly be a large component of the creative industry. I think this is a nice pivot because it is really difficult to advocate for funding of movies when you look at that $4 million and in a year like this, sure, you know, you've got these two big successes that you just outlined it. But in a typical year, what do we usually have to show for it? When you build capacity, you can at least show that you've built systems, you've built sustainable structures that can support movies. And it's less of the lottery bet on, can I get a production here this year? I think the other thing it does is it sets us up for the future well. I don't know how many of our listeners think the metaverse is going to be a thing or not. Hopefully at zero. (laughs) But it's conceivable that we could see more entertainment in the form of virtual reality and these kinds of things. And so Screen Industries isn't just about film and television. It's also about some of these digital media and building capacity to be able to take advantage of opportunities that might come in those, you know, sort of emerging parts of the of the industry, extended reality. I think that that's also a win from this change. Well, and, you know, we've long been in Edmonton, a pretty big video game city. I'm thinking like Bioware, Beamdog, you know, that new Inflection Games that's producing Nightingale. We've always had this video game technology. And the line between video games and film and TV, it's starting to blur. And we can certainly leverage our video game clout and put more screen and film talent into those. That could be a way to really build a new industry that doesn't have a Vancouver already set up, doesn't have a Hollywood already set up. So it's exciting. I'm glad executive committee uh, gave this the 5-0 and I expect it to pass council quite easily. Agreed. Speaking of things that pass easily, all the time in this episode has gone away from us, but we have just enough left to read you another ad. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local nonprofits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Supporting local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kosowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. And that's all for this week. As always, we like to plug things that, you know, may not get enough attention, may not get enough eyes on it, and we love to use our platform to really help out these smaller creators and smaller events. So watch The Last of Us on HBO. It's one way you could spend your time. Or you could spend it in the best 15-minute district in Edmonton, the White Ave area. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. You you just rolled over on that one.